Welcome to an exegetical study of biblical scripture. This scripture is God's speech, God's story, written through the hands of men by his spirit, and it's all about God's glory. My name is Bryce Ferguson. Join me now as we go into the word. This is Genesis. our Lord Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, to a day of worship, to a day to dig into God's word and to be changed by God's word together. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, high and above all of the earth, high and above our circumstances, our society, our governments, our culture, all of the influences here on earth, God, you are above them all and worthy to be praised, and great to be praised. Give us eyes to see how you see, Lord. Give us a heart that loves as you love, Lord. I invite the Holy Spirit to change us, to form us, to make us more like you, God. As we are made in the image and the likeness of God, may we be changed also in our mind and our heart, to be more in the image and the likeness of you, God. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. So after the covenant, God set forth to Adam at the beginning of chapter 2, which we read last week. Now God talks about a helper, a companion for Adam, a human companion, so he would not be the only human on earth. And for the first time, we see the description of something other than good. If you have your Bible, please join me and open it to Genesis 2, sorry, Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Quick aside, so I spoke before about how the Lord formed the man and we had not heard of a forming of other creatures until here in Genesis 2 verse 19. So there was a forming, there was a personal touch from God. But his creation of man and his forming him from the dust of the earth and breathing into his nostrils was distinctly and is utterly distinctly different. Back to verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Scripture continues, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Before there were clothes, folks, before there was clothing, they were naked, they were human, in biological human form, and were not ashamed. There was no reason to be ashamed. There was no reason to feel shame. So much of sin, so much of nakedness outside of heterosexual marriage in God's design creates shame. But that's not the case 
because sin has not occurred yet, and because these two were brought together by God to be in union together, which we define as God's design on marriage or marriage or heterosexual marriage. And this is the reason that they were both naked and they were not ashamed. Let's look at dominion first here. Starting in verse 19, I'm going to skip over 18 for the moment. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. We see this echoed down in verse 23 when he addresses the woman of creation. And this is an echo of earlier where it says that God created the living creatures and brought them to the man to see what he would name them. God shares his dominion with Adam. How amazing is this? How beautiful is this? This dominion sharing that we talked about earlier, that in chapter 1, verse 28, his charge to male and female, to Adam, and then to Eve, was to do all these things and to subdue it and to have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And scripture says God brought the creatures to Adam to see what he would name them. That he shared this dominion, that he invited Adam into what God was doing and said, I want you to play a role in this. I want you to be part of this. I want you to be in and of my kingdom, if you will, in this. So he is to have dominion. And in verse 20, we read, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field as part of his having dominion. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. What fits? We buy clothes that fit us. Something is a good fit if there's a good in, in joining together. When you're fashion, uh, fashioning or detailing or making something, an object or tools, or you're recreating something, you're putting something together, when it requires being put together, you're looking for a good fit. Or in medical procedures, right? That's pretty important. I would hope that that would fit together well when there's a surgical procedure going on or when two businesses are coming together or there's a merger or there's an acquisition. You're looking for a good fit or it's not going to be a good merger. It's not going to be a good acquisition, even if one company is dominant and it's and you're bringing them under your roof. If you cannot create a fit, it's not going to be a good fit. And what we saw before with creation is all of these different creatures, but we did not see a good fit. And Adam recognizes this too. Guess what? He was human, like we are. Now let's go back and read verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Not good. What did we see in chapter one? We saw. God created this and it is good. We saw God created this and it is good. God created this and it is good. We saw God created man and he said it was very good. But in verse 18 here in chapter 2, God says, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make... So see, he doesn't leave it at the problem. He doesn't leave it at this is not good. He says, I will make a him... I will make, excuse me, him a helper fit for him. This is the amazing love of God. This is the amazing order of God's creation. God takes darkness, which was God's creation, and God brings light or illumination to the darkness. What is that? God is creating order out of darkness. You've also heard it said before, chaos. That God brings order out of chaos, or God brings organization out of disorganization, or God brings something you can see 
out of when you could not see because you did not have the capacity to see, which is darkness. And God brings light. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. God brings order. God invites man to have dominion in his order because God brings order. God establishes order and God invites us into his kingdom to be part of it. And there is a role there and there is a responsibility there and there is a lot there. But this is what God is doing. It is not good that man should be alone. God so, God so keenly knew that we have an innate desire to have companionship with another human. God was with Adam in the Garden of Eden, yet he knew Adam longed to have a mate or someone of his kind, as, as I mentioned. You see how basic it is when you look around the animal kingdom, folks. Animals are almost by natural instinct seek out mates, right? They, they seek out a, a suitable mate, if you will, and then they pair together with them. Now, this varies greatly in the animal kingdom, so don't use this for any more of the example than it is, but some animals, creatures, get together simply to breed. Some for a brief time in a harsh environmental survival situation because it's better to be paired together with another one of its kind better than not to be alone. And then there's some animals, like most wolves and most types of birds, which pair for life among a few other creatures. We see the repeated language in the story of creation about creatures according to their kind. And in the story of Noah's Ark, later in Genesis 6, 19 and 20, that the creatures are called to the ark in a single pair according to their kinds. And again, their kinds. And again, their kinds. And it affirms to me that God made us to be in relationship with each other as humans because it's according to our kind. And for many people, that means marriage. And for a number, that may not be marriage, but family and extended relatives and friendships. And folks, for all of us, that means other believers in the church. We are to relate to each other or to encourage each other, to help each other, love each other, forgive each other, pray for each other, bring each other to Jesus in prayer, in all aspects, to pray each other to Jesus, to pray to Jesus for one another. We were made for this, and God did not make us to be alone. God did not make us to be without. For to, the, to those of us who are single, you're still not without if you're not married. And if you are married, then you have another set of joys and another set of challenges. But still, God's abundant provision for his people is himself. And he gives us each other, humans, other believers, friends, family, relatives, to be companions, to be helpers in many ways. But the helper in marriage, the definition helper, let's look at that. How, how is someone a helper in marriage? How can we look at the scripture here? How can we see that, a, that God will make a, a helper fit for Adam? Well, this plays out in a number of respects, of course. And some of these you may think of, and some of these you may not have thought of yet. And I'm sure there are many more in this list, but I've got for work, and that may be inside or outside of the home, for maintaining the home, like chores and cleaning and maintenance and upkeep, for acquiring and preparing food, to care for each other in sickness and in health, and that's common in the marriage vows, for pointing each other to God, and namely, I will say for the man to point the woman to God. Men are called to leadership. Men are called to lead their wives in so many respects. And we'll get to that a little bit later today. But for the man to point the woman to God, 
And yes, also for the woman to affirm the man to God. It's a two-way street. A relationship is a two-way street. And God has empowered women so much. It's not just that the man is to be head over the marriage in terms of responsibility before God. And that is what the headship means. A woman is also responsible in many ways to affirm God to him and to the family. And also for having children, of course, when children are a factor in a marriage, when those present because many marriages do not have children, a marriage and a helper is definitely present when children are present in caring for the children and protecting the children and notably for instructing children in the laws of the Lord and in the word of the Lord. This is a helper. Someone to shoulder the load. Scripture also uses the analogy of a yoke, which is somewhat foreign in our modern Western culture. But a yoke is the harness, if you will, that you affix onto the back of two livestock side by side. That in shouldering the load, if you will, the two carry one load much better. This is the helper. This is the helper fit for Adam. This is the helper made according to his kind. Now let's read verses 21 and following. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So we have the great physician. God is the great physician. God creates out of nothing, ex nihilio means out of nothing, to create out of nothing, to bring forth out of nothing. He creates. And sometimes he creates using other elements and nutrients that God made man from organic matter. That from dust he would be born and to dust he would return upon physical death. Scripture gets into that later. That we are made of organic matter filled by the Holy Spirit when we surrender our life to Christ, but we are physically made of organic matter. And now we see God do surgery. God is the great physician. God is the great creator. God is the great surgeon. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, upon Adam, excuse me, sedation. He's an anesthesiologist. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. What do we see here? What I see is a very personal, intimate experience, which Adam was sedated for. God said, in this, according to his kind, I'm going to use a piece from inside of him, a piece of his bone, his structure in the rib, I'm going to take that out, and I'm going to form the woman. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So God is the Lord of biology, surgery, and apparently medical practice too, if you will. What else do we see here? You see, God created mankind for community. Yes, he made woman after he made man. He didn't create them to dwell individually in the garden, obviously. All the way back to 18, the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. But what does God also do? It seems that in verse 22, wherever physically in the physical plane that God made woman, it was not directly next to Adam. The rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. He's bringing together humans. This is what God does. This is what God is about. God is about interpersonal 
relationships, interpersonal communications. And when it's God and man, I guess it's not interperson, it's inter God and man type relationship. God is a God of relationship. The Trinitarian God of the Bible has relationship with each other or himself, if you will. The plural and the singular in one. This is the Trinity. This is the Trinitarian God of the Bible. And God wants to have a relationship with man. And God wants to have a relationship with woman. And God wants man and woman to have a relationship because God is a God of relationship. God is a God of creation of relationship. And this is good. What else do we see here? We see that God defines marriage. The man said this at last. He was waiting for it. He was longing for it. He was desirous to have someone like himself in so many ways, and yet different, and woman is different than man, but alike in so many ways, someone according to his kind. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And in the Hebrew, if I can pronounce this right, man was ish and woman is Isha. Hear how similar those two are? M-A-N, W-O-M-A-N. And he goes on to define marriage in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, which we haven't seen yet, folks. We're only in Genesis 2. But God is making this declaration through the author of Genesis Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So what is the idea? What is God's design? What is marriage? One male, one female. That's it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no changes. There's no derivations. There's no someone prefers this, someone thinks they're that. Nope. God makes it very clear. And Jesus affirms this. Let's look at this. In Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verse 3. The Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? You can see we're already far off the rails of Genesis 2 at this point. Granted, this is around the time of Jesus, so this is at a di completely different point in time. Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The Pharisee said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now, there's a lot here, folks. There is a lot here. The first thing we see here is Jesus quotes Genesis 2. Jesus quotes and affirms the passage, today's passage, in Genesis 2. That God set the standard, that this is the standard, before the fall, this is the standard, but we're going to address divorce here by an article that I found uh, written by Messianic Jews, a Messianic uh, Jewish church, and get into this for a little bit more context because this passage in Matthew 19 is talking about divorce. And there seems to be some confusion between, first of all, us, I'm sure, thinking about this from present day back to the time of Jesus and then hearkening all the way back to Genesis. So with marriage and divorce, let's get some clarity. Now, this is in part, or references rather, the Talmud, which is the central text of rabbinic 
Judaism and the primary source of Jewish religious law and Jewish theology. Since we're looking at the Old Testament, or that of the Jews, this is a good place to go. This is from a theological reading that I found online at rabbiyeshua.com, and I'll include the link with today's episode. They write, when we read the word testing about this passage, we think that perhaps the Pharisees were insincere in their inquiry of Yeshua, which is how they pronounce the name Jesus. But they were asking with sincerity. They wanted to know what he thought about divorce because the two most prominent schools of the Pharisees, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai, hotly debated that issue. The question actually from this week's Torah portion in Deuteronomy 24.1, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, end quote. The debate arose between the two pharisaical schools because of the ambiguity of the Hebrew word used for, quote-unquote, something indecent. The conservative school, Shammai, took a very narrow approach to the verse. It taught that the something indecent refers to adultery or sexual immorality. So by this opinion, a husband could only divorce his wife on the basis of unfaithfulness. She must be unfaithful to him. With this understanding, the school of Shammai left little room for divorce. The far more liberal school of Hillel interpreted the verse quite differently. They taught that something indecent meant just anything that the husband found undesirable about his wife. Hillel taught even if a wife was lacking in her abilities as a cook, that that qualified as something indecent and was regarded as legal grounds for a divorce. We can find this debate recorded in the Mishnah. Quote, the school of Shammai says a man should not divorce his wife unless he has found her guilty of some immoral behavior, as it is written, because he finds something indecent about her. The school of Hillel, however, says that a man may divorce his wife even if she has merely ruined his food, as it is written, because he finds something indecent about her. In Gitin 9.10, and that was part of the Mishnah, the Pharisees wanted to know where Yeshua, and that's Jesus, stood on this debate. Yeshua answers them in verses that follow in Matthew chapter 19. This is what we just read, where Jesus says in Matthew 19, 4, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Yeshua, in verse 8, speaks of a hardness of heart that has taken place in man since the fall in the garden. Knowing man and woman were now imperfect and prone to sin, God, through Moses, allowed divorce for marital unfaithfulness. Though God allowed divorce, this was not how he intended those of his kingdom to behave. If we are to be members of his kingdom, he desires us to return to the model that he established in the garden before the fall. Yeshua makes this clear in verse 9 by stating that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness commits adultery. Here, Yeshua would seem to make absolutely no room for divorce whatsoever, but Brad Young, in his book Jesus the Jewish Theologian, points out a possible answer for this discrepancy between the Torah and Yeshua's declaration. Young's alternative translation is based upon a grammatical point in the Hebrew that would make this verse read, quote, anyone who divorces his wife, unquote, in order to marry another, commits adultery. As we read, and this is a quote from uh, Young's book, in Hebrew, the force of the expression would have linked the two actions together in continuous motion. Kol hashalak et eshto venos akaretnov or everyone who divorced and marries another commits adultery. Perhaps in English, one could better capture the meaning of the saying by translating it, quote, everyone who divorces his wife in order to marry another commits adultery. And that is Young's interpretation from his book. 
There is one final point that we should consider before reaching a conclusion. That point is that adultery was an offense punishable by death by stoning, as we read about in Leviticus 20, verse 10. If true, adultery has been committed, then there would have been no need for divorce. This makes Yeshua's answer even harder to understand. So what is the answer to the question that haunts so many in Yeshua's redeemed community? Yeshua's response was intended to get each man to consider the motive of his actions, to get him to search his heart and to call himself to a higher standard of Torah observance, the first five books of the Bible or the books of the law, just as he had done in so many of his teachings. Are there any other reasons for one to divorce their spouse other than adultery? In answering the question of whether or not divorce is permissible, we must take a more personal look at the matter. Marriages in Israel were arranged by the parents and were made by those who were under the covenant obligation to live by certain standards. And so, a higher standard should be and was applied. Believers today, however, often find themselves coming to faith years after being married and living under conditions that are not tolerable. Often, they are in abusive situations with possibly drug addicts or criminals. This is not how Yeshua intends or desires his redeemed to live. Yet often, when believers go to their pastor for advice, they end up receiving the verses quoted above as a warning to remain in their current situation. Adultery represents a complete breakdown in the marriage and a violation of the marriage vows. This happens because of a total lack of love and respect for one's spouse, and it was for this reason that Yeshua said divorce was allowed. Abuse, neglect, and criminal behavior also represent a violation of vows and a lack of love and respect. It is a larger article. And again, I'll link to it, but, uh, I'll, but I'll leave it there. The point is, and this doesn't cover all the bases, folks, but an abusive marriage where one party is abusing another party or possibly where each is abusing each other, that is not God-glorifying. That, that is not a marriage that glorifies God. An abuse is the opposite of the sanctity of life. And God is a God of life. And if you are someone in an abusive marriage right now, or you know someone who's in an abusive marriage right now, pray for them and encourage them to go to their Bible-believing and God-fearing pastor and have a conversation. Because this is not the situation that God wants them to be in, because God does not want his children harmed. He doesn't. He does not. He cares about them greatly and wants to see them protected and their life protected. And that is extremely important. And again, we're just scratching the surface. This is a flyover on the topic here. Each individual situation is different. Each individual situation is important. And each individual situation should be addressed and remedied by people who they know personally in the church to help and to get them help. But what we see here is a whole nother perspective on this passage in Matthew 19. We see that the Pharisees who do not understand God in this aspect, and possibly in some scholars think that they were trying to test Jesus here, or they were trying to catch Jesus here because there were those who did not take just one wife in their culture, and there were those in the Roman government who did not just take one wife or took their brother's wife or what have you, like Herod. They were looking to catch Jesus potentially in something that he said. Jesus goes back to Genesis 2. It's right there in his mind because he's memorized the word of God, because he believes the word of God, because the word of God is who he is, by the way. And he affirms the word of God and he proclaims the word of God to them. And he says, what did God say in Genesis 2? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. See, folks, the holding fastness 
the closeness, the faithfulness. This is what God is about. God is about your faithfulness in relationship with him. God is about being faithful to his people and faithful to his word. He affirms his word. He makes covenants to his people because though the people break the covenant, though they fall and stray again and again, God remains faithful. So when man is faithful to his wife, this is representative of faithfulness. Who gave us faithfulness? Who showed us faithfulness? Who set us apart to be faithful in all of our relationships? God. God first. God himself. When God calls us to a relationship, he says, I will be your God and you will be my people and we will be together in a covenant. And God makes promises to his people and it is absolutely beautiful. The God's love is at this depth and at this intensity. When we have marriage vows as people, when we take marriage vows, we make a promise one to another, a covenant of faithfulness. That's what it is. Sometimes people get very flowery with their words or poetic with their words, and they tend to stray from the commitment that they're making to each other in the words that they decide to say. A marriage is a covenant to each other before God, whether they profess God or not. God is over and above the marriage and over and above everyone on earth. So it is to God, and it's a commitment to each other. And God says, a man shall leave his father and his mother. What does that mean? That means that the new relationship that he's having and committing to for life with his wife, she and her regard and his care for her and their unit marriage relationship now means more than his consideration for his father and mother. He has to consider her first. That is limited because if she is sinful, he is not considering her sinfulness first. He is not going to follow her into sin. And this is true of any relationship. God calls us to serve him first and him greatest. And even in a marriage relationship, you're still serving God first and you're serving him most. And you're even submitting your love for your spouse on the altar before God because God is first and your spouse becomes second in marriage. Your second priority. Because the Bible says that you are to hold fast to your wife as a man, and the woman to hold fast to her husband. That is faithfulness, and the Bible uses this language, shall become one flesh. So let's get into this a little bit. Some people have told me, folks, the marriage is not specifically compared to the Trinitarian aspects or the Trinitarian relationship in the Bible, or that there's not a specific scripture to it. But let's explore a bit. Because I believe God gave us marriage for this reason. It's not that marriage is God, obviously. It's not that marriage is compared to God. That's not the point. Not in a God-like comparison. That's not the point at all. But what do we see here? Let's look at what we've seen just so far in Genesis. When God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. This is all all of these verses here are representative of God and of who he is. When he says, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And when the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it, that's what God does. And when the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone, I will make him a helper fit for him. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, 
and they shall become one flesh. All of these verses are representative of God and of who he is. So yes, God created mankind to be representatives of who he is. Or you've heard the term, or to mirror, or to be a mirror that would reflect God to the world. So too, I would say marriage is analogous of a closeness or a, a tight-knit community in a small way. It's the interpersonal relationship of how God is somewhat with the Trinity, I believe, and that they are God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and they are all one. So in marriage, in a loving, caring, respectful, considerate, God-fearing marriage, both the man and the woman forsake in many respects their single-mindedness or their consideration just for themselves that they had before as a single person, instead for a coming together and a uniting under a single title, a single purpose, a single worship of God. She takes, or at least used to, in many, and still does in many respects, his surname, that is to say, to become one flesh. But this does not change the fact that God's salvation work, of course, is for each individual person, that God's personal relationship is with each individual person, that remains individual between you and God. Like I said, God has got to be on the throne, even over your marriage, even over your spouse. But marriage is designed and is to be a place of community under God's headship, under God's leadership, under the worship of God. It's a very small congregation type of church, if you will, in marriage. Two people small, but two people in a way that is not known and is not experienced when you're single. God created marriage and God designed marriage. Again, God is a God of order. God is the one who establishes things as they are to be and as they are. Man can try to redefine this. Man can try to contort this. Satan often likes to use the scripture of God and malign it and con contrive it and reinvent it. But the word of God remains forever and is unchanged. So listen to the word of God. And don't listen to what the world declares is what the word of God is saying. And don't listen to what pagan society or pagan culture is saying. Or don't listen to what Satan tries to say about God's design. Because Satan is a liar. Satan is a deceiver who steals, kills, and destroys, John 10. God created marriage. And it's one man and one woman. And that's it. And that's the only way it works. Biologically, first of all, right? Prominently, right? Physiologically, psychologically, sociologically, and actually most of all, theologically. Because we are believing God. We are trusting God. We are affirming God. Oh, and that's really the best way too. Because God's way is always the best way. God's design is perfect. God's design is very good. Let me say something else too about, about men and women, about man and about woman. I want to defeat a cultural lie, if I can here for a minute. Women are beautiful. Women are precious. And there is a sanctity and there is a a wondrous aspect about women. This is spoken from a man's perspective, but I believe this is also very biblical. God's charge to men is to take care of women, and what that means is respect, consideration, encouragement, and love in the, in the manner of speaking of how you would take care of a family member. The Bible uses the language over and over again as a sister. 
that we are to look out for, that we are to listen to, that we are to affirm and encourage and lift up and bring to Jesus in prayer and point to Jesus by pointing her to the scripture, by leading her in the scripture, by pointing her to the scripture, by affirming to her God's word and God's truths, because one, that makes much of who God is, and two, that helps her see it. And that encourages her, because as we get distracted, she also can get distracted by the things of this world. She also can get tired and forgetful of the things of this world. We're all human, folks. And she needs to be reminded of God's word. This is a huge part of the responsibility of men in marriage, I believe. We're to carry her to Jesus and bring her to Jesus and encourage her to Jesus. Now let's talk about men. I think personally men get a very bad rap from our culture. I think men are not spoken well about. I, I watch TV shows even back to the 90s and probably before where it seems like the woman of the household was always affirmed or made much of, or she was that much smarter, or she, you know, the dad essentially was always portrayed as a clown. I'll say it. He was a joke. That's how they portray it. God does not define men that way. If you're a man, God does not define you that way. God does not see you that way. God does not bestow his dominion to someone in, that the world sees in that way. Or if you were a joke, or if you were just, just humorous, or, or if, if you were unrespected or disrespected. Because I think largely that's how our culture and our society sees men, and that is not it at all. Let me tell you how God sees men. Tell you how God sees both of them. Genesis 1 26, and you say, Bryce, you've hammered this verse over and over and over again the last month. And I'm saying, amen, because we need to be reminded because we need to look to God for our definition and not to that of the world because the world promulgates a lie. God said in verse 126 of Genesis, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Man, woman, you are, you are both incredibly important to God. Men are made as men, biologically and in so many other ways, with masculine traits and these very important facets that God has created in you for his purposes and for your life on earth. And women, the same. That God has made you woman for very specific reasons, biologically and otherwise, and there is a goodness to this. God has made man for good reasons, God has made woman for good reasons, and both of these are good in the sight of the Lord. And you are incredibly valuable to God. You are not a joke. You are not an afterthought. You are not worth less. You are not worth little. You are not of no regard. You are incredibly loved and valued by God. And if you are made a man at birth, you are to live as a man to the glory of God. And oh, by the way, you already as a man represent God in so many ways. In so many ways. If you were born a woman at birth, you were to live as a woman to the glory of God. And there are certain ways as a woman, just like men do as men, with femininity and in female attributes and personality traits in so many ways that glorify God and are so wonderful. And you are very loved and valued by God. 
And with that, I want to close in Ephesians. Chapter 5, starting in verse 22, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. We haven't really got into that scripturally yet, starting out in Genesis, folks. But yes, that is God's created order. The man is to be responsible for his wife in large measure. And that's why the Bible talks about the man to be head of the household. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. I'll clarify that in a second. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Verse 31, you'll find this familiar. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, Paul says, is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There was some, obviously, turmoil and stress in the church of Ephesus at this time for Paul to have written this in his instruction to them. He is saying, the man in the marriage is responsible to God for his wife. Therefore, she needs to obey God in that created order that God created, submitting to him as long as the behavior and the teaching and the Words that he says are honorable and godly. That's the key with verse 24. And then see his charge to the husbands in this, okay? Verse 25, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The charge to a man in marriage is to love her like he loves himself and also that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word of God. So not for her to submit to him in anything sinful, because that is prohibited here. But to obey him in his godly leadership. And let's jump back to chapter 5, verse 1. For context. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So he is to seek after God. He is to exemplify God. So is she. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetousness, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. 
Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then it goes into it, and then it goes on. Here is the charge to his children. Put away the things of this world. Put away disrespect. Put away anger. Put away greed. Put away jealousy. Put away covetousness. Put away idolatry. Put away sexual immorality. Put away any tends toward dominance. This is not allowed in the kingdom of God. This is not allowed for God's children. This is not allowed in marriage. This is not of marriage. This is not a marriage that glorifies God. And God says it must be repented of, change, and obey God. And this is the charge for all of us in marriage or not. But Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus says, a relationship between a man and a woman in dating, I will say, in courtship, and then in marriage is all the same to glorify God by having consideration and respect for each other. And let us not miss out on what Paul says here, that any type of relationship, that any relationship in the church should be in addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, sorry, filled with the Spirit, singing and making music to the Lord with your hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and then submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, the reason we submit to each other is because we submit to Christ first. The reason that you can submit your own desires as an individual in marriage and out of and then for consideration for your spouse is because you submit to Christ first. Because Christ is on the throne of your heart, not the other person. And that enables you to love and to care and to forgive them in a way that you would not be able to if you live by the world's standards. And God's call for his children is to come out of this world and be set apart and be holy and glorify God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for giving a created order and a standard, setting a standard for how we are to be in relationships, how we are to be in relationship with each other, and how we are to see our identity in you. And to not define ourselves by the way that the world chooses to put labels onto mankind. That we are not labeled by any other classification of ethnicity or race or sex, because we don't have to categorize ourselves by the way that the world wants to categorize humanity. No, we look to you for our definition. We look to you for how we are to be in relationship with you and how we are to submit and to surrender our desires to you. For the reason of having relationship with you, for the reason of being faithful in the covenant with you, and then how we are to be also in our relationship with each other, with one another, and to be faithful in our covenant relationships here on earth. Oh, Holy Spirit, lead us and guide us and fill us so that we can be more like Christ, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Join me next time as we continue in God's story of Genesis in chapter 3.